Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. We have uh, people here who are uh, our guests today, and we're thankful for you. We're thankful for all of our members that are present, and thankful to the Lord for allowing us this opportunity to come into his presence and worship together. Appreciate Kurt leading us in our singing this morning. I really uh, don't say this very often publicly, but I, I am proud of him. And uh, proud of the gifts that God has given him and the way that he uses them. And I appreciate him leading us in our worship this morning. Those of you who know me well will probably be shocked to know that I don't like to run. And I never have. In fact, some of my most painful memories in high school are about running. Uh, our basketball coach in high school was also the track coach and if you didn't run track you didn't play basketball and so that's how my running career began that's also how it ended <laughs> uh, I, I didn't set any records running but I, I did I did achieve some rather spectacular last place finishes uh, during an other, otherwise undistinguished running career but with that being the case I've, I've Still always enjoyed watching track and field. I've always enjoyed that, and I've especially always enjoyed watching relay races. I love the, the teamwork that's involved in it. I love the fact that you've got people who have to do their best to do their part and then to be a part of a team that, uh, that comes together to make the whole thing happen. But if you've ever watched many relay races, you know that the most crucial part of any relay is the handoff. It's the handoff. It doesn't make any difference how fast everybody runs. It doesn't make any difference how elegant their form. It doesn't make any difference how Herculean the efforts are that they put forth. If they drop the baton, it's game over. And so uh, the relay uh, is an important symbol, I think, for what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The runners have to get the baton from one hand to the other while both are running, hopefully at top speed, so that there's no hesitation, there's no misstep, and the race can continue. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he knew that he had to make a handoff, and he knew that he didn't have much time to get it done. You see, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. He knows that he's very soon going to face the executioner's sword. In chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In the same way that the priests of Israel poured out offerings of oil on the altar of God, Paul saw his life that way, that his life was in the process of being poured out already, and he knew that pretty soon the last drop would fall. So he said, I'm already in the process of being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will grant to me. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He knows that it's not going to be long. Now, Paul didn't think that the gospel was going to die with him. 
He knew better than that. He knew that the gospel was in God's hands. But he knew that if he didn't hand off the gospel, and the ministry of the gospel, clearly, successfully, and smoothly to somebody else, that some terrible things were likely to happen to the church. He saw some dangers ahead, and they just come out, they just, this letter just bristles with those things because they're on Paul's heart and on his mind as he gets ready to lay down his life. He knew for one thing that persecution lay ahead. And he knew that somebody had to be willing to, to step up and endure it for the sake of the gospel the way he had done. He also knew that most people couldn't be relied on to uh, endure the suffering and the persecution that would take place. He knew that most would turn away. In fact, most already had, he says, at least of his associates. He knew there would be people who, if they were not stopped, would embroil the church in foolish arguments that were about nothing of importance. And that, as he put it, would eat their way like gangrene and would only lead to more and more ungodliness. If somebody didn't stand in and stop them from doing that. He knew that in the last days, people would love all the wrong things. He said they'll be lovers of self and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure, but not lovers of God. He knew that a time was coming when people, as he put it, would not endure sound teaching, but he said they will, having itching ears, they will gather for themselves, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own liking. In other words, they'll find people who will say what they want to hear. And he says when that happens, then they will wander off into myths. They will wander away from the gospel and they will wander into myths. So when he writes 2 Timothy, he's writing to encourage him to take up the mantle of his own ministry and continue the faithful proclamation of the gospel. So in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I hope you've got your Bible open to look at these with me. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he gives two admonitions that will be necessary for this smooth transition. If there's going to be a good handoff, these two things have to happen. Number one, in verse one, he says to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Some translations say, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and that's not necessarily wrong, but the verb is passive. In other words, it's not saying make yourself strong, it's saying be made strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the, how is he made strong by the grace that's in Christ Jesus? This is not talking about so much the saving grace of Christ as it is the sustaining grace of Christ. That grace that upholds us, that grace that makes us able to endure anything that Satan can throw at us. That grace that is available to each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. But we don't always rely on it. And so he tells Timothy to rely on that, be made strong in that grace. He was going to need plenty of that grace just as you and I do. So the first thing is to be made strong in grace. The second thing, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, Timothy doesn't need to be an inventor of anything. He doesn't need to be an innovator. He doesn't need to come up with something new or something novel. He just needs to proclaim the gospel that's been delivered to him. He needs to hand on 
what Paul has handed on to him, the gospel in all of its power and its purity. You know, there's always the temptation in the church for us to think we need to do something new. We need to do something different. And I'm not talking about methodologies because we do need new methodologies from time to time. But there's a difference between methodology and message. Sometimes we get mixed up and we think what we need is a new message. And when we think that, we're completely on the wrong track. Because what we need is the old message. We need the same message. And so Paul tells Timothy to entrust that message to faithful men. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, he describes the gospel as a treasure. He says we have this treasure in jars of clay. The jars of clay were the apostles. The jars of clay were people like Timothy. The jars of clay are people like you and me. The treasure is contained in jars of clay. You don't usually hide treasure in a clay jar, do you? But he said this is the amazing grace of God that we have this treasure in jars of clay. And now he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20 to guard the deposit that has been left with him. And now he's telling them to entrust that treasure, entrust that deposit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There needs to be an unbroken chain. And there has been for 2,000 years. That's how the gospel came down to you and me. Somebody was faithful enough to hand it on to somebody else who was faithful enough to hand it on to somebody else who was faithful enough to hand it to you. And so the gospel has been handed on in this way and that needs to continue. But notice, you can't just hand it off to just anybody, Paul says. You've got to hand it off to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faithful men and able to teach others also. Now, faithful men, faithful men doesn't just mean that they're believers. That goes without saying. They've got to be believers. But faithful in the sense of reliable. Faithful in the sense of men who can be counted on, men who can be trusted. If you go back to chapter 1 and verses 15 to 18, the last few verses of that first chapter, the verses right before our text, Paul has said that you are aware that all who were in Asia deserted me. They were not faithful men. They didn't stay with it. He does talk about this one good brother named Onesiphorus, and he says, oh, may God bless him and his household because he was so good. He was so faithful. He was so reliable. He's talking about trustworthy men, faithful men, reliable men. But they have to also, he says, be faithful and able they have to be capable of transmitting what has been given to them. Now, you might be sitting there wondering today, what does all this have to do with us? Isn't this just about training preachers? Isn't he just talking about handing this on from preacher to preacher or preachers getting trained so that they can do a good job of proclaiming the gospel? And isn't this just applicable to a very few? And we need to think about that because that's not quite right. We, we think of preachers as having the primary responsibility for passing on the Gospels, and preachers do. Preachers do have a responsibility there, but they're not the only ones. They're not the only ones. There are others who share in that task equally, in that responsibility equally. At least that's what the Bible says. 
Look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. In giving the qualifications for elders or shepherds, Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. He must hold that word, that word firmly, surely. So that he can do two things, so that he can teach the church, and so that when these people rise up that Paul saw on the horizon who were going to be saying things that would lead people astray, he could rebuke them. He could put a stop to that. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach able to teach. In second, uh, 1 Timothy 5, in verse 17, he said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I'm not at all sure that when Paul said what he did to Timothy about entrusting the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, I'm pretty sure he's not just talking about preacher training. Remember that in Acts chapter 20, when Paul warned the church about the coming of fierce wolves into their midst who would scatter the sheep if somebody didn't do something to stop them. Who did he ask to meet with? Did he call for all the preachers in the province of Asia to come to him? No, he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. And it was to those elders that he gave the charge that they needed to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers to care for, to tend, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I want you to notice we're not just talking here about being able to teach a Bible class as we think of that, but we are talking about being able to instruct the church in healthy doctrine. We are talking about being able to protect it from those who would distort the truth. We're talking about being able to know the difference between truth and error. And then being willing and realizing that you have the responsibility to stand against that error and to teach that which is true. And whether that's done in a public setting or it's done one-on-one, it has to be done. Shepherds have to know the difference between truth and error. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14, Paul put it this way. You heard it read earlier, but let me call it to your your memory here. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And sometimes in our Bibles, the way that's translated and the way that it's punctuated, shepherds and teachers looks like two things, but the Greek constructions indicates it's the same thing. The, The shepherd teachers, the teaching shepherds, if you will. He gave to the church, he says, apostles and prophets. They've done their job, haven't they? And thank God for them. We had the the apostles who proclaimed the gospel in the first century and and who, who were inspired by God to leave us scripture. And then the prophets who were gifted by God to speak his word in an inspired way. But now he says we have the shepherd teachers, and we have the evangelists. And what are they supposed to do? He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, 
in deceitful schemes. Notice what he says that the evangelist and these teaching shepherds are supposed to do. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here's the question, folks. Who equips them? Who equips the equippers? You know, it's an unfortunate thing about our history in the church. We have appointed men to the task of being shepherds. We put them in those roles, often without giving them any equipment at all, other than what they get in worship and in Bible classes. And I'm not demeaning that at all. Because that's, that's great if they've been diligent participants in all of those things for a lifetime and if they have been paying attention and they've been seeking to learn. That's a great foundation. But let me tell you something. It isn't enough. It isn't enough. Because there are challenges in leading God's people that never get discussed in those settings. You talk to anybody who's ever been in the role of an elder a shepherd, and they will quickly tell you that there are things that they have to deal with that you are not ever going to hear addressed in a sermon. You are not ever going to hear them addressed in the Bible class, but they're real. They're part of the work. They're part of the task of shepherding the flock. It's the nuts and bolts kinds of things that make the difference between successful leadership and unsuccessful leadership. A number of years ago, when I was teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University, my, my boss down there, Cliff Edwards, marvelous man, Cliff called me one day, and Cliff said, I, I want to ask you about something. I said, okay, what is it, Cliff? He said, I'd like you to teach world religions next semester. And, and I said, Are, you do know who you called, don't you? Said, yeah, yeah. I said, I don't want you to teach world religions. We don't have anybody else to teach world religions. I said, Cliff, I had one world religions course, one semester, back in the dark ages, right, right after writing was invented. And, and, and I said, that's all I've ever had. He said, that's okay. He said, you can read up on it. You can, you can do it. And I said, Cliff, you would have people, I'd have students in the class who knew more about that than I did. Because I'd be talking about their religions. I said, by the way, which half of world religions are we talking about? Is it Western or Eastern? See, the Western religions, Judaism and Christianity, you can kind of make your way through that. Eastern, all that other stuff. He said, Eastern. I said, no way. No way am I going to do that. Why didn't I want to do that? It could, have been, it could have been enjoyable to do that. It could have been interesting to do that. I would not have mind stretching myself to do that, but I was not equipped to do that. I was not equipped to do that. I couldn't have done a good job of doing that. I could have made a colossal mess of doing that. I could have been, I could have been embarrassed doing that when a Hindu or a, or a Buddhist or a Jainist student raised their hand and said, ah, Dr. Self, I think you missed that. And they'd be right. We've got to be equipped. We've got to be prepared. But we have a history of not equipping people. Now here's where I'm going with all of this. We are currently in this congregation without anyone in the role of shepherds. 
And that's not a healthy situation, and nobody likes it. And we're determined that we're going to correct it. But the question is, the question is, why are we in that situation? The question is, why? There are a lot of factors, I'm sure, but, I, but I'm convinced that one of the most significant factors is that we have failed to equip and train people. Last year, we had Bob Taylor from the Sunset Academy of Leadership Training come and do a workshop for us, and that was very helpful. It was, it was in, encouraging. And one of the things that Bob said, though, kind of shocked me. Did you know that 65% of churches of Christ in America currently don't have elders? 65%. That means only 35% do. 65% have no elders. And Bob says the reason for that is that we've always assumed we've always assumed that people could take those roles and function without being trained, and so we haven't trained anybody. And now those folks that have had those roles are aging out, and the pool of potential candidates is getting smaller and smaller because nobody's being prepared for it. Nobody's being equipped for it. And he said, that's what we've got to change. That's what we have to change. We have to get people prepared, equipped to fill those roles equipped to do the things that Paul says that Timothy needs to teach people to do. No one is stepping in to fill their shoes. In some cases, in some churches, you have ill-equipped, unequipped men stepping into those roles and leading those churches right off the rails because they do not hold firm to the sure word as taught, as Paul said in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. It is imperative that we make training and equipping faithful men a priority here at Glen Allen. The last time that we had a training class was six years ago. I looked it up. I knew it had been a long time. It's too long. And that's my fault. I bear the burden of that. But I will remember that we started off with about twice as many people as we ended up with. There was some enthusiasm about it at first, and then as we got into the the study and into the nuts and bolts of things and into the nitty-gritty of things. People just sort of found other things to do, and, and we ended up with a very small crowd. We didn't train very many people. We have to do better than that. So starting on Sunday afternoon, October 2nd, and going through November 20th, we're going to begin a shepherding training class called Trained for the Kingdom. You're going to hear that title, Trained for the Kingdom. It comes from Matthew 13, verse 52, where Jesus said, Every scribe trained for the kingdom is able to bring forth out of his treasure that which is both old and that which is new. That's what we need. We need men who are trained for the kingdom, who can be faithful servants of God and faithful servants of the body of Christ. We're going to meet on Sunday afternoons at 4.30, and anyone who is interested is welcome to come and take part uh, in those, uh, those sessions, particularly, particularly anyone who thinks that you might be a potential shepherd, even if you don't think you're a potential shepherd. I encourage you to come and be a part of this training. It will take some time. 
It'll take an investment of time. There'll be some outside reading and, and study and discussions. But let me tell you, shepherding takes time. And if you're not willing to invest the time in being trained, you won't be willing to invest the time in being a good shepherd either. So that's what we're going to be trying to do starting October 2nd. We can't possibly cover everything we need to between October 2nd and November 20th. So we're going to, we're going to do that again. It's not going to be a repeat of the same thing. It's going, to be, it's going to be part two. And that'll be in February and March. And so this morning, I, I'm asking you, encouraging you, not to think that this doesn't apply to you. Maybe it does apply to you. I want to encourage all who want to get into the study of church leadership. I'm not talking about secular leadership. Listen, there's tons of material and information out there about leadership in the business world and leadership in the community and all that. We're going to be talking specifically about leading God's people in the church. And if you're interested in that, I hope that you'll come and take part in that. You may not see yourself as ever being qualified to serve as a shepherd, but let me tell you something. Very few people who serve as shepherds ever saw themselves as being qualified years beforehand. The time to start getting prepared is now. You may think, well, I'm only 35 or whatever. doesn't make any difference. One of these days, God's grace, you'll be older than that. And you'll need to be equipped, but the time to start getting equipped is now. So what we're needing is faithful men who are willing to grow and stretch themselves and become qualified, if at all possible, and others with a good understanding of what is involved to encourage them to be involved. So I'm asking you this morning to begin doing two things. Number one, I'm asking you to start praying about your own potential involvement in these studies. Don't assume it's not for you. Give that some thought and give that some prayer between now and October 2nd. The second thing is, start praying now that God will raise up the faithful men that we need to serve as shepherds, that he will put it on their hearts, that this is something that he would have them to do, that he would put the desire to serve in that capacity in the hearts of those that he gifts to do it and that they will become equipped to do the work. When Paul wrote to Timothy, telling him to entrust to faithful men the gospel he had received, he wasn't just thinking about having a well-run church. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about having a well-oiled machine. We're not talking about having something that other people will look at and admire us for. That's not what it's all about. What we're thinking about and what Paul was thinking about was the survival of the church, intact and in good health. The church will always survive until Jesus comes again because it's his church and he'll make sure that it does. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But an individual congregation can struggle, and an individual congregation can die if it is not led by faithful men who are teaching others also, who are holding firm to that sure word is taught, who are clinging to the gospel and proclaiming it to others. The one thing that keeps us solvent as a people is the message that saved us in the first place. That's the only thing that'll get us through. We have to be sure 
that message continues to be taught, that it doesn't become distorted, that it doesn't become diluted. And it's going to take faithful men leading a faithful church to do that. It's all about the handoff. Let's bow and pray, please. Father, we are so grateful to you for the gospel. We're so grateful for the good news that your son came into this world and died for our sins, that he left behind a people, the body of Christ, of which we have the enormous privilege of being a part. Father, just as that price of our salvation was high, help us to understand that the price of keeping the church healthy and strong will not be cheap either, but that it will require the best that each of us can give it. Father, as we look into the future, we pray that you would raise up for us the faithful men that we need, that you would help us, Father, to be led in the, in the ways that you would have us be led, that we would be shepherded always in the ways of the gospel. Father, I pray that your blessings on these training sessions that they will help to equip good-hearted people who want to do your will, to have the equipment that they need to be able to lead effectively and successfully. Bless us, Father, that we will proclaim the message of Christ to everyone we can, that we will do all that we can to be strong, to be made strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you've decided today that you are ready to begin following Christ, we sincerely hope that you will, that you would come today and say, that's my desire. I want to put on Jesus. I want to confess him to be God's son and my savior. I want to be baptized into his death. I want a new life. You can do that this very day. It's God's faithful promise to you. That's the gospel. If you're ready to embrace it, we encourage you to come while we stand and sing. There's a fountain.